0: invite you i know if you notice or not there's a bunch of tables in the back with a bunch of people handing out some really good stuff and uh i know lunch is in a little bit but on your way out you can grab some goodies and it'll sort of appease your appetite and one of the things around the men's ministry deal is is uh beef jerky there's a slim jim out there guys so uh you know i've never seen a woman eat these any women eat these some got one or two this is not something you eat and then do any kissing afterwards you know what i'm saying you gotta got to do a little uh, picking and a little brushing before that happens. Man, this, this can create some nasty breath. But but what we're inviting you to do is to go back in the back and take a look at some of the, the ministries that are provided through the uh, tithes and offerings and the ministries of our church. And, and I invite you to go by and look and, and check it out. And there's some opportunities for you to serve and be a part of some of these ministries. So go by and take a look at that and, and see how you might be able to participate. Uh, we're going to go to an interesting st- topic today called greatness and uh, to be quite honest with you it's, it's something that I've struggled with for quite some time because you know in my personal opinion I, I've watched over the years and I've been uh, sort of connected to ministry all my life my dad was a pastor and then a missionary and then I sort of uh, uh, got called and accepted that call and have been in ministry now and been in the church for about 50 plus years. i not going to tell you how many beyond 50, but 50 plus years. And, uh, and so I've seen a lot and seen a lot of ministers, a lot of pastors, a lot of people. And the term greatness to me just doesn't seem to equate or to, to sort of describe those of us who are disciples or Christ followers or Christians. I mean, a great Christian, how do you define, how do you describe, what does that look like? Greatness. And so what I've struggled with over this thing called greatness is that I've noticed in my own personal evaluation that those that, have, that, that strive for greatness seem to me to be sort of arrogant, sort of cocky, sort of overly confident, self-absorbed. It has a tendency to sort of define to me those people that are stepping on others in order to get above them, and they'll use anybody, anyone they can to aspire to the greatness that they think that somehow they're entitled to. And this word greatness sort of conveys that entitlement mentality for me. And so I had a hard time thinking about this week how these words of Christ apply personally and to us together today, because the reality is that we don't often think of, of our faith uh, in, in the terms of greatness. Humility, yes. Grace, yes. Mercy, yes, but greatness. And uh, I, I sort of scratched my head and said, it sounds like and seems like that this study is kind of one of those charismatic type studies that you hear on some of our networks that I often watch from time to time. And, and uh, so I, I want, want us to be careful with this whole subject of greatness, but we're going to look at the words of Jesus this morning, and we're going to go into a definition of greatness. Greatness is achieved when I'm like Jesus. Jesus was great, and when we become like him, we become great as he is great. But greatness does involve humility. Humility that is infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit and our yieldedness to the Spirit of Christ in all humility as we are obedient to the Word of God, as we aspire and seek to attain the greatness that Christ was. So I want us to stand together real quickly. I want us to read the passage, one section of our passage this morning, and it's found for us in verse, I think it's verse 25 through 28. I think that's it. So it's twenty-six. Notice the passage here as it says, But Jesus called them and said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, what a joy it is for us to be in this place of worship this morning, to be able to stand with brothers and sisters of the faith, That encourages us as we stand side by side and enter into this beautiful presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Seek together, not just individually, but together, corporally, coming together and elevating, exalting, glorifying, and magnifying you for who you are. And thank you for all that you've bestowed upon us, unmerited favor, for we were saved by grace through faith. And that it was not of ourselves, but it was because of the gift of your son and through faith in him. So it's in his name and it's through the power of his resurrection that we boldly enter into your throne of grace today. And we are exalt, we elevate, and we praise you this morning. And now as we come to the time of opening your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to be receptive to the realities and the changes and the transformation that you would want to bring. Open our minds to different thoughts and aspects about this whole concept of greatness. For many of us, honestly, probably struggle with greatness. We all do. Some of us, like me, would want to be and want to claim to be so humble that we would not want to seek or aspire to be great, and that we would sort of you know, put, a, put a damper on that and not talk about greatness. But there some of us that so aspire to greatness that that's our only quest— and because of wrong definitions and wrong models, we aspire to the wrong goals and we have the wrong values. And so wherever we are today in this aspect of being great as you are great and being a great servant, that you would humble us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and the inspiration that comes through that Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would help us lead this place this morning to aspire to become like you, Jesus, great. Not just great by the world's standards but great by your standards and God's standards. For greatness is measured through servanthood, through service, through sacrifice. So help us see and understand more clearly how we struggle not only with our culture and with our own carnal natures and with the temptations the enemy brings into our lives and conquer this aspect of greatness and to model greatness as your son Jesus did. Enable us and empower us to do that. By your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Greatness is uh, something that I think all of us should hopefully aspire to have. Although we probably would not want to define greatness in, in probably the world standards or even in our own standards. But I think we do have, as I said in my prayer, this whole concept and this whole struggle with greatness. And the reason why we struggle with greatness is because of us, because most of us have learned and we have studied and we've come to the place in our lives where we believe that, that humility is something we should strive for. And it's hard for us to understand how we can be humble and yet great at the same time. And then there's some of us that would claim to be great in our humility. And I would question that. I'm, I'm great in humility. Well, if you just say that, that just doesn't really balance out, does it? For who of us would claim to be great Great in humility, but that just doesn't sound right, it sounds contradictory. Humility doesn't declare greatness, does it? And so we would have a tendency, I think, to shy away from this whole concept of striving to be great as Christ strives to be great. Then you, you sort of culminate all of that with this whole culture that we live in that somehow has defined greatness in these unnatural, unspiritual terms, and some of it has even crept into the church today where many in the church are defining greatness by the world standards, by the world model. And, and we hear that and we see that and we evaluate that. And so we sometimes shy away from that because of our cultural influence and, and, and its pursuit to not only become gr- great companies, you know, a great job, great finances, become great, aspire to be great. So there are seminars and books and all of that that sort of culturally help us in the natural grasp this whole concept and this aspiration to be great. And so we, we, we look at that, evaluate that, and we say, you know what, that's not really for me as a Christ follower. We, but the culture continues to influence that. Not only does the culture influence that, but there's this, this innate thing that we call this, this little self within us that is often very carnal. And I've been reading some books lately, especially one particular book about holiness, and he aspires to encourage us in that book to shy away from a Christianity that is carnal. And he claims that the church today has become extremely carnal, although the church in his time was several hundred years ago. And, and uh, it's interesting how the church has not moved a whole lot from being sometimes incredibly carnal, because even those of us who are spiritual, Paul says, can be very carnal in our faith. But we do struggle with that inner carnality, that little me and that little self within us that, that wants to be great, that wants others to acknowledge how great we are and how great our service is and how great our, our gift was or how great our conversation, you know, just we, there's something in us that, that we just, we want the applause of people and recognition and, and pride wells up. And we struggle with that, don't we? So not only is the culture and not only does our carnal nature, but there's also an aspect of the enemy that often comes. And, and as the enemy comes, he tempts us with, with pride and self-centeredness to be great, to aspire to be great. And he came to Jesus in a moment of, of, of 40 days in the wilderness, of fasting and praying and, and getting ready for his earthly ministry, he, he came to Christ and he tempted the pride and the, the arrogance and the aspiration of greatness to Jesus, and he tempted him with, with things that would elevate him and make him great in the eyes of others, didn't he? And that same temptation that Jesus went through in that wilderness is the same temptation that, that often comes and he knocks on the doors of our heart and he tempts us with pride and arrogance and, and to feed those appetites of the flesh to aspire to the world standard of greatness. And we, we battle the flesh, we battle the, the demonic temptations, we battle the culture. And so some of us would have a tendency then to just shy away from this whole concept of greatness because we're, we're fearful of all that it, it may bring into our lives and cause us to sort of not reflect the likeness of Christ rather than to reflect the likeness of Christ. And Then there's some of us, I think, who shy away from greatness simply because we love complacency. You know what I mean? It's easy to just kind of sit back and say, you know what? I don't really need to strive for greatness. I can just kick back, relax in my salvation and coexist in my carnal nature and, and just just not strive for anything. And so we settle for mediocrity and we settle for anything less than the complete likeness of Christ because maybe we've made some movement and some progress, but we settle. And then there's some of us, I think, who have a real hunger To be great in the proper biblical reference. To in humility recognize our total dependence upon God, and in that dependence upon God, yielding to the leadership and to the transformational work of the Holy Spirit. In obedience to the Word of God, we we are striving to become great because we know that the one that we're following was himself great. Great. And we want to be great like he is great. Although we know that that goal is elusive and and evasive at times, and we evaluate ourselves based upon a reflection of the perfect form of greatness and our inability to live up to that standard, we still still want to move toward that. We have the right model and we have the right motive for wanting to aspire to true greatness because our Savior was great. And so I want to look at this concept of greatness because it is here that we find in our text that the disciples have this insatiable desire to be great. And it's interesting that Jesus does not rebuke them for this desire to be great. Instead of rebuking them for their desire to be great, because I think Christ wants all of his disciples to be great as he is great, he comes to them and, and he defines for them exactly what greatness looks like. And he says, greatness is, is, looks like me. For I have not come to, lo- to, 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 to be an authoritative, proudful, boastful recognition. I've come to describe and define greatness for you as someone who is a servant. Who sacrifices his life for others. And someone who gives rather than takes. And so he redefines this aspiration, this pursuit of his disciples should be great. Well, let's take a look at the text. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 20, as we begin with verse 17, Jesus discloses this proper standard of greatness. He reveals himself to them. Here, I am great. And here's he, he's not doing it to boast or to, to elevate himself. I mean, he is the son of God. And so he, he's not boastful as we would think. He's not, he's not proud. Pr- uh, prideful as we might conclude but he's simply saying I am the perfect standard because he is perfect then his motives are perfect and so he elevates himself and he discloses himself as that beautiful model of perfection in other words he's setting the table for the disciples and what's about to take place so let's take a look at verse 17 and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them Interesting, verse 7, it begins to talk about Jesus' going up to Jerusalem. If you read the passage and know anything about the context, Jesus and his disciples are in Jericho, and they're heading west to Jerusalem. And you said, how is it going up to Jerusalem? Well, Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So even though it's 12 miles west from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's an uphill journey all the way. And I kind of laughingly thought about the Christian journey. How many of us would describe our Christian journey, our pilgrimage, as an uphill battle? Is it an uphill journey? I mean, I keep waiting for the, the downslide. Down you know, you can put it in neutral and just, just kind of glide. It doesn't ever seem to be reality in my life. I don't know about yours. And so it is, it is an uphill journey, isn't it? And, and this 12 miles is uphill all the way. Kind of like coming from Oklahoma to Wichita. It's just uphill all the way. And so as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, notice he takes 12 of his disciples. These are the 12 in the inner circle. And, and the idea is that Jesus is traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he has an entourage with him. More than just the 12, there are others who are there. And, and they're, they're making this pilgrimage going west towards Jerusalem. I know that's north, but let's pretend that's west, okay? So he's going west, and he's going to, to Jerusalem, and, and he has this entourage. It's the 12 disciples, but it's probably... A couple of dozen other people maybe more we don't know how many but there's a large crowd going with him and so they're making this journey this 12 mile hike up the mountain to the city of Jerusalem and he brings his disciples to his side he gathers them sort of away from the others now I can imagine this must have been hard to do I mean, you've got a large entourage following you to Jerusalem, and now Jesus wants to have a little moment alone with his 12 disciples because there's a key principle that he wants to teach them. And he gathers them around him, and they sort of maybe they walk ahead of the crowd, maybe they walk behind the crowd, maybe they go to the left or to the right, but we don't know. But he, he gathers them around so he can have an intimate, personal conversation because there's something intimate and important that he wants to communicate to his disciples. You know, there's some messages, I think, that are intended only for his disciples. And this is one of them, especially the inner circle. And so he brings them aside, and they are walking with the group, sort of huddled together toward Jerusalem. And the others are either ahead of them or behind them or to their left or their right. But there's an intimate time where the disciples are coming together. Now, notice what happens. Jesus says these words. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. As the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. I mean, this is the gospel in the nutshell here, isn't it? He talks about his destination in this text, and he's saying, "Guys, I I, I want you to see this." And this word "see" is a huge word. He said, "I want you to pay." Close attention to what I'm about to say because this is strategic. This is important. You need to listen to the message that I'm saying to you. And I think every message that Jesus communicates to disciples is important. Every one that he communicates to us is important. And anytime he speaks like Eve Hutton, we need to listen. And he's saying, Listen, guys. This is important for you. I'm going to give you a forecast of my life. And he gives them the destination in this forecast, and he says, I am heading in the destination toward Jerusalem. My destination is a death march. Jesus, his entire ministry, if we've been talking through this, this, throughout this series, always had in focus the end of the line. He always knew that he was headed to Calvary, and every decision, every, every message, every Every miracle, everything that he did pointed to the cross, to his death and his resurrection. He was focused on that. He always had the end in mind. But at this particular occasion, he's pointing to the disciples and saying, guys, I am narrowing my focus. I'm, I'm, I'm putting that, and, and it's clear, it's just around the corner. I am now beginning my death march toward Jerusalem. That's my destination is the cross. And as he describes the destination, he talks about a disloyal activity on, one, on the part of one of his disciples, because he describes that he's going to be betrayed. He doesn't identify Judas, but Jesus already knows in advance that Judas is about to betray him, and yet Judas is a part of this conversation and, and this information. Judas is there. All the twelve were there, and Judas was there. And can you imagine Jesus telling this story, and the one that he knew that was going to betray him is in the inner circle. He's one of the twelve. And not only does he talk about the disloyalty of Judas, but then he noticed that that he's going to be denounced as the Son of Man. Did you know that he uses this title, Son of Man, 80 times in the New Testament? 80 times. It was one of his favorite descriptions of himself. It comes from the Old Testament. It is a, a, a title. It is a metaphor that is descriptive of the Messiah. It is indicative of his divinity. It describes that he was the God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. He was both fully man and he was fully God. I was talking to a pastor this week about someone they had been talking to for quite some time. And they then began to, to devil into the, the reality of who Jesus was. And at first he thought the man was a Christian. But as they began to talk about Christianity and about who Jesus was, he said, you know what? This, this guy isn't a Christian because he didn't believe that Jesus was God. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is God. You just can't. Because unless he was God, he couldn't die on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. And so he is defining himself as the divine, fully God. And notice they're going to denounce the fact that he is the son of man. They are going to convict him and they are going to condemn him because they're going to take him to a tribunal. They're going to take him to the court of law in Jerusalem over all of Israel, which are the scribes and the leaders and the elders. They were the lawyers of their day and they were going to have a mock court and a mock jury. They were going to convict him and condemn him to death. The only problem is they couldn't carry out the sentence so they would have to deliver him, if you notice the text, to Rome. Because the Romans, although they allowed them to have their their courts, could not execute punishment or discipline upon anyone, especially death, without confirmation from the Roman Empire. And so he was then, notice he was delivered then to Rome. And once he got to Rome, he was completely disrespected for who he was. Not only does the passage say that deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, but he was to be flogged. They totally disregarded and disrespected who Jesus claimed to be. They mocked him. They mimicked him. They laughed at him. They, they did actions and said words that mimicked his message and his miracles. And they laughed at him. They spit on him. And they, they reduced him to nothing, seeking to discredit him and his claims. Then he noticed the beautiful text. After all that took place, they would crucify him and he would die. On a cross for sins that he didn't commit. And following his death he would be buried. But notice what he says. Notice in the forecast what's going to happen after three days. He's going to rise. Man we're getting close to Easter. He's going to rise. And the disciples heard this. They heard this. I'm not fully sure that they totally intended to understand the complete context of the message. But they heard these from the very mouth of Jesus as he is predicting his life. But Jesus in this text is setting the stage. He's he's setting the table for what's about to happen. And he says to them as he discloses himself, I have come to be a suffering servant who will save people from their sin. I'm going to die so that you might live. That's what a servant is, someone who dies to self so that others might live. Then notice the desire then that is described by the penmanship of Matthew. It's interesting that he goes straight into this context. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. The mother of the sons of Zebedee We know earlier in the context of Matthew that Zebedee was a fisherman. He had two sons, James and John, who leave everything to follow him. He was also a partner with two other guys named Peter and Andrew. They were partners in in this fishing business, this fish and chips business. And uh, these two Partners also leave with his two sons, James and John, and these four people that he's very close to in business with in partnership with, leave to follow Christ. But we never hear of Zebedee ever in any of the scriptures ever coming to faith in Jesus. And yet the mother of James and John, anybody know her name? It's kind of, it sounds like a meat. Salome or Salome. If you want to say salami, that's an easy way to remember it. Salome, we know by Scripture, eventually becomes a disciple of Christ. But she's the mother of James and John. And so now we see in the context, possibly, we don't know for sure, but Salome, the mother of James and John, is in the crowd following Christ from Jericho to Jerusalem. And after this conversation that Jesus has, in which he disclosed himself as a suffering servant, they gather together with their mom, and they're having this discussion. And like most mama's boys we have any mama's boys in here any mama's boys are you willing guys to confess you're a mama's boy i see you daniel melissa you're in trouble is she here today mark take note of that he's about to get married to uh to this beautiful young lady you don't deserve her you know but anyway we'll go right on can i get amen on that mark that's what i thought These two mama's boys go back to mama and they have this conversation and more than likely they talk about this conversation they've had with Jesus. And they conclude that Christ is about to set up his kingdom on earth. They completely disregard all that Jesus has been saying that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual world for now, and eventually he will return. But for now, it's not an earthly kingdom. And so these mama's boys go back to mama, and they talk about it. And maybe they conclude that Christ, after he dies and raises from the dead, is going to set up his kingdom. Maybe. I don't fully understand or know that maybe that was what it was. According to what happens later on in Matthew, they completely disregard what Jesus has just said here and forget that he's going he's to rise from the dead in three days anyway, and they lose complete faith and hope. And they hide for fear of their lives as they themselves deny Christ. But they believe mistakenly that Christ is about to set up an earthly kingdom. And what mother in here doesn't want her sons to be great? Any mother in here, would you testify, I do not want my sons to be great men? Not a a single mother would say that. And this mother wants her sons to be great. And she takes the boys maybe by arm, I don't know, we're going to go see Jesus. Now, the scripture says that she went with them, with her sons. So, you know by Mark chapter 10 that there was a, there was a conspiracy here with the two sons and the mom. And, and Mark says that the boys were the ones who asked Jesus for this position. But in Matthew, he claims that it was the mother who said it. So, which one? I think you put the two together that mom probably asked of the Lord. But the sons were conspiring with mom. While she was saying these words to Jesus, they were, amen. Right on, mom. Go to Jesus and, you know, get us a spot. And what, mom's not going go to go to bat for her son, right? That's probably why all the sons, every time you see them, they go, hi, mom. They don't ever say, hi, dad. You feel short-sighted, guys? Yeah. So I don't know what's up with that, but it drives me crazy all the time. I just want one guy to say, hi, dad. Thanks, dad. But it's always mom. They even got commercials about mom now. They, what are we, chop liver guys? Anyway, that's where they all say, if Mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. They don't care about dads. Anyway. So they go to their son with her sons. Notice she kneels before him. She kneels before him. Now, kneeling is a common custom. It's a courtesy of someone in authority or someone over you. You kneel and you bow before them. I get that. But I'm convinced that Mary, as a disciple, is kneeling before Jesus in, in an act of worship, she's recognizing the sovereignty and the authority of Jesus to grant her request, and she's bowing before Christ, and she's kneeling. She's worshiping him. But unless we conclude that this is an act of worship that is a good act of worship, I'm going to remind you this is an act of worship that is not a worthy act of worship. Why? She comes to Jesus and bows before him to receive, not to give. She's coming and kneeling before Christ to get something from him. And there's a lesson on worship that I think we need to learn here that when I come to the place of worship and I bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and I worship him, I come empty-handed. I don't come with an expectation of receiving anything from him. For if I come and worship him with an anticipation or an expectation to get anything from him and that now he owes me because I've worshipped him, I have worshipped him falsely, incorrectly, and that is unworthy worship. Because what we do in here and what we do on a personal level and our time alone with God to worship him has nothing to do with us and it's all about him. And when we elevate him and exalt him and recognize him, we we come empty-handed and we open our fists and we expect nothing in return. That is honorable worship. And yet we come and we worship and we walk out here on Sunday and say, Now, God, you owe me because I've worshipped you. You need to be good to me this week. You know, if you got everything that you deserved, you'd be hellbound right now. And any any act that God bestows anything on you is by grace and grace alone. You don't deserve anything. And and this Salome comes and she bows with the wrong motive. Because she says after she bows, she asks him for something. She bows and said, Oh, by the way, I need something. One of the scholars that I read, I like what he said. He said, He said, is asking for uh, um, a blank check. Hey God, will you hey Jesus, will you give me a blank check? Because the request here is, is somewhat of a request that, that is just open-handed. It's 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 non descriptive It's just, will you do something for me? Will you do anything for me? Will you give me a blank check? Will you do whatever I ask? Will you meet whatever need I think I may have? And notice Jesus says to her, what do you want? Jesus is not clueless to why she's there. We know by Scripture that Jesus knows the intent of the heart. He's he's read many other people's minds. He knows exactly what her intent is and the reason why she's there. And so Jesus is simply, I think, asking the question, and he's saying, hey, Salome, I want you to become honest with me. Don't pretend to worship me and then ask for something. Just go ahead and ask it. He knows what she's going to ask. And notice she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. They made a mistake, as I mentioned earlier, as we started this text, that Jesus was about to set up his earthly kingdom. And in setting up his earthly kingdom, they thought, hey, I want my sons, one at your right and one at your left. I don't care if James is here or John or James over here and John, but I want, one, I want them when you're on your throne. I want one to the right and one to the left. Now, I want you to notice the response of Jesus I alluded to as we began this study. Jesus does not rebuke her for her desire for her sons to be great, nor for her sons to be great. He simply rebukes them for the model and the motive for greatness. So we've seen this desire. Let's now look at the distortion of the concept the disciples had for greatness. Greatness distorted, verse twenty two, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. You'd have not a clue. You misinformation you do not have all of the facts because if you had all of the facts about knowing what it was going to take to sit on my right side and my left side you wouldn't have asked this question you are failing to recognize the cost and the sacrifice involved of what you're asking you've not deduced what is going to Require in sacrifice for your sons to sit at the side. And if you knew all the information, if you had recognized the cost, I'm not sure you'd be asking for this. Because what mother wants her sons to suffer? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor. It talks about the suffering every time that it's mentioned. And he's asking the disciples, are you Able now in your own strength, strength maybe in and of yourselves or some other strength from the outside source that may come. Are you able now? Are you presently right now at the place in your spiritual journey and your walk with me? Are you confident that if you were to be asked to walk in my shoes and to die as I'm about to die, that you would be capable of enduring it? Are you sure? Notice what they say. We are able. They're insistent that they are able to suffer as Christ suffers, or is about to suffer. Would you call that cocky or ignorant? Maybe both. Because had they had all the information, I'm not sure they would have asked Jesus to sit on the right and sit on the left. And he says to them, you will drink my cup. How would you like to hear that from the words of Jesus? You will drink my cup. You are about to suffer as I'm about to suffer. I mean, most of us run from suffering. We take pills to prevent suffering, right? I don't know about you, but if Jesus said this to me, he's, he's predicting my future. Doesn't sound like a very great future to look forward to, does it? But to sit at my right hand, he says, and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The sovereign God himself alone is the one who assigns these positions. Jesus is submissive to the Father's will to the extent while he was on this planet, he was submissive to the Father's will. I mean, we know that. He himself willingly relinquished some of that, that, that position that he had in heaven, being one with the Father, to be submissive to the Father's will. We do know that upon his resurrection, that all authority and all power in the Great Commission is going to go to Christ, that Christ is going to be elevated now to a position in which he and God, again, sitting on the throne with the Father, joining in that reign and that rule, is going to be in the same authority and have the same power as Christ. But while on earth, he's saying, My heavenly father, your father, your God Is the one who is already pre-assigned Because he is the sovereign God And he alone has the ability to grant that Now notice then what happens And when the ten heard it They were indignant at the two of them The word indignant means angry It means that they were filled with pride This is not a self-righteous thing particularly But But it it may be, it's it's not a righteous indignation, but it may be. But I'm convinced that what's happening here is that the other 10, notice all 10. Now, who's writing the the book here? Who's writing the letter? Who's writing the gospel account? Matthew. How would you like to tell on yourself? It's kind of like when you were a kid and somebody took the last cookie and somebody said, who ate all the cookies? And you say, I did. Why would you do that? I don't know about you, but I always said my brother did it. Matthew here is saying, he's, 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 he's talking about himself. He's, he's claiming, I was indignant. Not only me, but the other nine disciples who, who heard later on that, that James and John and his mom, these mama's boys, came to Jesus and asked him on the right and left. We're, we're indignant. We're upset. We're mad. We're angry. We're filled with pride because we didn't think of it first. How dare them get to the, to the Lord before we could? Because there are several times before this, I'm convinced they talked about who was going to be the greatest. And these guys had the audacity to go before Christ without them. Thought we were brothers. And they're stepping on us to get to the top. They were indignant. They were upset. They had a distorted concept about what greatness was and how you achieve greatness because they themselves wanted to be great. And I think they were saying, you know, had we had the opportunity, we would have stepped on them in order to get to the top. Because being at the top, being at the right hand and the left side of Jesus, when he he establishes his kingdom, man, we're going to have power. We're going to have prestige. We're going to have position. And we're going to be able to just rule with Jesus. And all these people are going to bow down to us and look to us for, for everything. Notice now what Jesus and how he defines greatness in verse 25. But Jesus called them to Him, and He said, "It's kind of like a shepherd gathering his sheep. Hey, hey, boys, <laughs> gather in, man. You're 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 way out of the realm of this definition of greatness. I need I need to bring you back in. You know, isn't it great to know that when we sort of get outside of the scope of where we need to be, He comes to us like a shepherd and kind of reels us in and brings us close and say." Hey, <laughs> you've strayed, man. You're, you're, you're way off target. You're, you're heading in direction. You shouldn't go. Come, come back. And so he calls them to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What's he saying? He's saying the world, this is how the world works. Anybody doesn't know how the world works, I'm going to disappoint you. Because what happens when politicians get in power? All of those that help them get there also gain access to that power. Who do politicians appoint to places of power when they get into office? All their buddies, right? Everyone that helped them get there. And so if you want to be in power, you better back a guy who's going to win because when he wins, it's payday, man. I'm going to get a place and a position of power and prominence and prestige, not because of my accomplishments or my achievements, but it's based upon who I know and who I backed. It's how the world, world, real world, real world works, doesn't it? Right? I've heard it said many times: it's not who you are, but it's who you know that helps you succeed in life. About who you know, and I've known many that have done a lot to connect and to know the right people so that those right people can help them. But I've also learned and as I have watched those who have who have made their life mission that it comes back to bite them in the end because those that, that uh, they help get there and they, they want returns. You do a favor for somebody to help them succeed, they're going to come back and say, hey, you owe me now. And they're going to expect something in return. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't work like that. I don't award positions a power and authority based upon personal preferences or this, this relationship that we have. That's not how it works. You know, that, that's, a, that's a rude awakening for many of us because some of us think that we're, we're God's favorite. Look at what I've done for his kingdom. And so he owes me now. I deserve to be blessed. We go back to the grace thing, but I don't have time for that. And then notice what he says. He says, It shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does he define and where the steps of greatness? First of all, we need to reject the world's view of how to become great. It's about personal privilege it's about uh uh my 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 thought that i i deserve to do this i deserve to have this because of a relationship that i have it's not based upon er- effort or merit it's based upon a connection the world has a different concept of greatness than than jesus does and does those of us who are disciples So we need to reject the influence of the world. We need to reject the influence of our carnal nature. We need to reject the influence of satanic and demonic temptations. And notice the word servant and slave. The word servant conveys this resolve that that in order to be great, I need to serve. You want to become great? Become a servant. The word servant here is the word for deacon, it's the word minister, or it's the word for servant. And it means someone that serves others. You want to be great? Be a servant to others. That's how you become great. Is that how the world defines greatness? Do you think the world takes a look at those people that are about to wait on some of us at tables and serve us in the meal that we're about to eat? Do you look at them as great people because they're servants? Most of us do not attribute nor do we, we, we maximize this concept that those who are servants are the greatest. And yet Jesus says the greatest are those who serve. Not only are the greatest are those who serve, but the greatest are those who are the slaves. In other words, he's saying that he wants us to recognize that we die to our needs and we elevate the needs of others above my own. And yet most churches don't operate like that. Most of us come to church expecting that our needs are to be met even at the expense of others' needs. Right? And yet Jesus says that a true servant, a true person that is pursuing greatness, dies to themselves so that others might live. Why? Because if you notice the text, we are to reflect the likeness of Christ. Greatness reflects the example of Christ. For Christ did not come to be served, but he came to serve. I mean, who are we to think that we are to be served when Jesus, the Son of God, who is divine, who is God in the flesh, perfect in every way, says, I did not come to be served. I mean, you would have thought that he should have been served and should have demanded and deserved service from everybody. He is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. Yet he says, I came to serve, not to be served. So who are we then to demand to be served? And yet I find that most of us, myself included, we prefer to be served rather than to be a servant. You know, when I stay in a hotel, I don't like these these hotels that come with with free breakfast, I just don't. People are touching stuff and their hands are dirty and there's germs everywhere. Nasty. You know what I'm saying? And they're, you know. Oh man, I was at a, I was at one of those all you could eat things one time and I kid you not, I was standing with a, I was sitting by the pastors at a table and I saw a lady got a spoon, put it and put it back and then then went to another something else. Yeah. That's when I made the decision I'd never, else, I'd never eaten one of those troughs again. You know what I'm saying? It's a trough. And, uh, but for breakfast, what do I like to do? I like to go to a hotel where you sit down in a breakfast and you get served. I like somebody to pour my coffee. I do. I like somebody to bring my stuff. You know, I had to make my own breakfast today. Pat is out of town. I had to clean up after myself. And a oh, all... Uh, but, But I like to be served You like to be served Don't you? Come on Don't you? Everybody does Everybody But we need to appreciate those who serve us Today and every day Really we should But often we don't But Jesus says Let me turn it upside down for you. It's better to serve than to be served. Why? To be like me. Let's close with these quick points, and I mean quick. How do I achieve greatness? I need to secure the right standard. If you don't have the right model, you're going to be in trouble. And Jesus is our model. Number two, I need to exercise self-restraint. You know, there's something in us that wants to be served, And there's nothing wrong from time to time for others to to serve us and to wait on us. And I I quite find it hard for people to minister to me. I don't like people to minister to me. I just don't. I I reject it sometimes. I do. And some of you who have tried, you know. No, I don't need anything. Don't do it, you know. Um, It's a false humility. I get it. But it's just a pet peeve I have. But we need to exercise restraint then, I think with this insatiable appetite to be served because there's something within us and there's this cultural influence and there's this demonic, this demonic temptation that comes, you deserve to be served. It's all about you. And then thirdly, I think we need to render the cost of service. Because whenever we decide that we're going to follow the model of Christ, we need to understand that every time we become a servant, there's a cost involved in that service. And it's going to require something of us in order to serve. And some of it may be some humble pie. Because there's something humbling about serving others, especially when it's not recognized, and especially when there seems to be no gratitude. And most of the time when we serve, there is no gratitude. And so we need to be we need to be we need to be willing then to to just offer that whatever cost whatever sacrifice involved, and and letting it go expecting nothing in return. I had a lady who called me, uh, an old friend of ours, and this person's always in financial and always needing financial help. And and Patty and I don't help them, we just don't because we know it's 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 going down a pit. We just do. This person got called by them, wanted to know what I thought. <laughs> And this is what I told her. I said, if you want to minister to them and give them some financial blessing, because this person's feeling led to do that, do it with no strings attached. Don't expect anything to change in their life. Don't expect any thank you and expect them to come back for more. And if you can do that, then give it. If you can't, then don't. And I think that's kind of how service is. If you're going to minister to someone, you just do it unto the Lord. Expect no gratitude, no recognition, and maybe them to come back and ask for more. (laughs) And don't get mad because you recognize and realize the cost in your service. Number four, we need to value others above ourselves. And that is a really hard thing to do, isn't it? These disciples valued themselves even more than their own disciples. Well, why didn't they include us? That gummit they beat us to the to the drill and they got ahead of the line. Rather than, you know what? If God wants to, to bless them, great. Because when we elevate others above ourselves, it's easier to serve. And then lastly, we need to execute Christ's likeness. When we're like Christ. It's when we serve. I don't know if you notice the crossing, the serve. How do I achieve greatness? By serving. Why? Because that's how he did it. And that's how we should do if we're to follow him. Let's pray.
1: this morning we get to celebrate that work that was done at the cross we have two coming this morning to give their public testimony that christ has become their savior and their lord what a redeeming work and it's good to know that it's good not only just for these two this morning but for everyone here this is diana Diana's been coming for some time, and so many of you all have invested in her. But a couple of weeks ago, she was visiting with some folks in the CLC, and she came to the point where she knew that she needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there in the Christian Life Center on Wednesday night, she prayed and asked Jesus to come into her heart to be her Savior and her boss. Diana, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. This is Robert, and I know Robert has a a lot of family members here this morning. So if you're part of Robert's family, would you stand? I've got two of them back here with us this morning. Robert is the son of uh, Kip and Karen. Kip is on staff with us here. Robert, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? Yes. Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism,
2: <laughs>
1: raised to walk in newness of life.